You're listening to the podcast of Hell on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. This recording is my full interview with Juliet Eilprin, the environmental science and policy reporter for the Washington Post, about her book called Demon Fish, Travels Through the Hidden World of Sharks. We played an excerpt of this interview during our show on September 13th, 2011. So, Julia, what was your motivation for writing this book in the first place? I really like writing about the ocean. It's an area which is relatively uncharted, so there's some really interesting scientific discoveries that are happening even now. And it's a little less polarized than some of the other topics I cover, like climate change. So I was really just looking at an interesting subject through which I could explore the ocean. And I decided sharks would be an excellent way to do that. So sharks were some embodiment of some interest you had in the ocean in the first place. Right. And I didn't grow up being obsessed with sharks. They are not. They weren't something I thought about. Did you grow up near the ocean? I didn't because I grew up in Washington, D.C. So and when we went on vacation, we generally went to lakes rather than beaches. So it wasn't a huge psychological driver for me. But once I started learning about them, I got fascinated by how they operated and what they meant. And so that's how I got drawn into it. So this was really terra incognita for you in a way. Absolutely. What were some of the surprises or the challenges you had in researching and writing the book? One challenge I felt like I had was how I was going to wrap together so many different threads that I think are part of shark stories. So how could I bring together the huge cultural role they play across time and space and and geography? And then how do I put that together with the science that we're learning about them, what we're understanding to be their threats, and what's happening in the policy world, and really put that together in a coherent way. So I think that that was one challenge. And then certainly just accumulating all the information I needed to get to be able to really understand sharks and then relate that to a general interest audience was another challenge. To research this book, you really traveled all over to find out what the different attitudes of different cultures and things were like. What were some of the, say, similarities, the common threads that you found among some of the different cultures? I think part of it would depend on which cultures you're talking about. So for example, with island cultures, one thing that I discovered is that they had a more nuanced view of sharks. And you could see this again, whether you're talking about Hawaii or Papua New Guinea or some other places, that what was interesting is that they didn't think of them as warm and cuddly creatures, but at the (laughs) same time, they didn't see them as as evil as the way that often the West viewed them. And in fact, they definitely, I guess one thing I would say applies to everywhere is that people recognize the power that sharks had. And if anything, they exaggerate the power that Mm. sharks possess. But again, when, when you saw the cultures that interacted the most closely with sharks, they often thought that sharks could use this power for good and for ill, whereas we tend to have this preconceived notion that they're out to get us and that they only act in negative ways. How often do those shark attacks actually happen? Well, it ver- it varies from year to year, but what you're really talking about is roughly there's something like between 60 and 80 attacks each year against humans, and then a tiny fraction are lethal. But what's interesting is that so 
annually for the past decade or two, it's averaged about five a year. Hmm. This year so far, we've had 10 lethal attacks. So that's a really unusually high number of lethal strikes. Although it's small number statistics, so you'll get a little spike like that every now and then. Absolutely. And again, when you put it relative to a number of things, for example, there are more than 30 people who died of a heat wave just in the United States this summer. So and certainly if you tally, whether it's these things or fireworks each year, you know, these are the kinds of incidents that actually far outnumber the number of lethal shark strikes worldwide. So as a comparison of perceived risk versus actual risk, sharks are much lower on the scale than people think it is. Right, right. They have kind of this outsized image in our minds that they're, they're a far greater threat than they are in reality. And that's probably been exacerbated by things like the movie Jaws. Right. I think what's so interesting about Jaws is that, first of all, that it really shaped the way an entire generation viewed I sharks. remember it you very know, well. I know, was that generation. It's, so it's it's amazing that you could really have, and that it's, that it's a generation not just in the United States, but really worldwide. And I think what's so fascinating is Peter Benchley, who ultimately became a huge ocean conservationist, hmm. is that he just tapped into a primal fear we already had. But somehow, by conveying it in such a vivid form, he really made people feel like they were vulnerable anywhere. The book started that ball rolling as well. In, yeah, in 74, the book was a bestseller. So that certainly had, had influence. And then I think it was just, of course, that it was the first summer blockbuster. And that gave it a prominence that it wouldn't have had even as, as a bestselling book. So Jaws scared people and freaked them out. And they wouldn't go in the water. Right. Were there any positive benefits from the book or the movie as far as shark-human interaction and perception? There's one definitive outcome that I would identify from Jaws, which is that some people became marine biologists because they thought that Hooper was such a compelling (laughs) character. And it's really interesting. Some of the marine biologists I interview for my day job at the Washington Post or for this book say that, you know, they really, they saw Jaws as kids and thought it would be a cool thing to do. So I think that's interestingly one of the the most positive elements that you can identify coming from Jaws. It's it's very interesting to see different sides scientific fields and what were some of the key reasons people went into those fields. Astronomers, a lot of times it was Carl Sagan and Cosmos. I wouldn't have guessed Jaws would actually get people interested in ocean biology, but you know. It's true. And I think the interesting thing is that, you know, Hooper lives in the in the in the film, and so maybe yes. that helped because <laughs> I think that in the book's rendition you might be more reluctant to become a marine biologist, shall we say. So in your book, you interact and meet some fairly colorful characters. Uh, one that comes to mind is Mark the Shark Quartiano, I believe is exactly. his name. Exactly. Uh, can you describe him? Mark the Shark is, is really a, a fascinating figure. He's a charter boat captain who operates off Miami Beach. And he, for a living, takes people out to catch sharks. Some famous clientele. Exactly. (laughs) Shaquille O'Neal and Robert De Niro. And while I was even out with him, Rosie O'Donnell came came on board the boat. So that's part of his, his bread and butter is really tapping into that myth and particularly the kind of macho element that's associated with Jaws. And whether, frankly, whether you're talking about a man or a woman, it's this idea, are you bad enough that you can catch a big, big shark and pull it up and take a picture and bring it up? to all your friends. And so that's that's what he does. And he's very successful at it. You also discuss something in the book called a shark 
color. What is a shark collar? Why would someone do that? Uh, uh, it's a very it's a very important job if you happen to live <laughs> in, in New Ireland in Papua New Guinea. So there's a small cadre of men who had this very important role within their village, whereas they are the ones who are seen as having an actual connection to the sea that allows them to summon sharks hmm. on, on important occasions and in fact do battle with them, physical man on shark battle. Uh, they have a wooden noose contraption which only exists in that part of the world and hmm. it works for them. They essentially manage, they use a coconut rattle to lure the shark to their canoe. It's a one-man canoe and then essentially ensnare the shark, tire it out through through the battle with the, with the noose and then ultimately use a club to bludgeon it and bring it back. And wow. it's a really interesting ritual because they see sharks as connected to their ancestors and really use these fishing interactions as a way to explain the world and answer some of the questions that they might have or certainly assert this idea that they're communicating with the people who came before them. So it really is a very intrinsic part of their culture. Yes, and one of the really interesting things is as there are people who've been colonized and it's a tradition that they've held onto because they see it as one of the most distinctive parts of their society and their culture and that for them it, it, is, it is in many ways what defines them and makes them different from everyone else in the world. What do sharks bring to an ecosystem? What is their key role in an ecosystem that's so important about them? They are among the top predators in the sea. And as such, they play an incredibly critical role because they keep mid-level predators in check. Sometimes they, you know, consume the the rays or other animals that are just right below them on the on the food chain. This in turn makes sure that you have the, for example, herbivore fish mm -hmm. on the bottom that can help keep coral reefs healthy because they eat the algae that might grow on them. So one of the interesting things is scientists are still trying to quantify with precision the role that sharks play, but there's no question that they they play an important role. And one of the things that I like is that sometimes their role is to instill fear in other animals. So it's not even that they would huh. eat them per se, but some animals might be afraid of sharks and therefore, for example, won't overeat the seagrass in a particular area. So I love that, that they can even engage in psychological warfare, not just literal warfare with, right. with that, other animals. That, that's a very interesting position. It's, it's some type of oceanic police or something. I don't right. know what. Exactly. So loss of sharks or destruction of their habitat or things like that can domino effect down to other species and just the health of the ocean. Right, exactly. So one of the concerns that scientists have at this point is that many shark species have declined by as much as 90% hmm. compared to their historic levels. And at this point, researchers estimate that roughly a third of all shark species face some level of extinction threat. Hmm. And so clearly, if you're going to take such a major player out of the ocean, particularly when you keep in mind that they've been around for roughly 400 million years. They predate dinosaurs. They predate dinosaurs by a couple hundred years. So with all that in mind, they, there's no question that, the, that there are dangers to removing them from the ecosystem. And one of the factors you discuss in your book is shark fin soup. 
Right, which is a major, major driver of shark mortality worldwide. So they're just harvested for their fins. Right. So really what you have is that because you can get so much money for fins, they can go for, in you know, one very rare case, $57,000 was paid for a single fin. But, you know, often it's, it's less than that. But still, it's a significant driver. It's worth, say, roughly 100 times the value of shark it's meat. It's a big status symbol. And it, it's, it's an incredible status symbol. It's an Asian delicacy that's served at wedding banquets and at business meals and so forth. That one thing that you're seeing happening is that there's just a huge incentive in developing countries to catch sharks. And then, you know, whether they consume the meat or sell that locally, it's the fins that go to Asia and supply this trade. So what is being done to protect shark species from extinction? Well, what's fascinating is that there is really a pushback at this point, that what you're seeing is a number of countries across the world that are taking measures to protect sharks because they're concerned about this. So, for example, just this summer, Honduras and the Bahamas both outlawed commercial shark fishing and basically said that they think they have more to gain by preserving sharks, whether it's for their ecosystems or for tourism, than than by hunting them for their fins. In California, they've just adopted a law that bans the sale, trade, and possession of shark fins that will be phased in over the next year and a half. And Washington and Oregon have also done that along with Hawaii, and this is something that might happen on a national level or may just continue on the state level. So what you're really seeing is that There are a number of, whether it's states or countries or globally, people are talking about what restrictions need to be put in effect. There is a recognition that if there's not something that's done to stem the global harvest of sharks, there's going to be there are going to be serious consequences. Right. You say that there's actually a some connection between humans and sharks. What exactly is that? There are a few different connections. One of the most intriguing ones that we're just discovering is the evolutionary connection. So, for example, the muscles that we use to chew and to talk and the bones in our inner ear come from sharks. Hmm. There's been the sequencing of the genome of the elephant shark, which shows some overlap with humans. And so, you know, I think some people have a hard time getting their mind around the fact that we might be related to primates, but the (laughs) idea that we might be related to sharks is pretty is pretty interesting and, oh, and I like shocking. that. Makes me wonder why I'm not a better swimmer. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I think that that's one of the interesting ways that, that there are abstract ways that we're connected to sharks through, you know, why we depend on the ocean and things. But and then there are these ancient ways and then these these modern ways because they're they're part of how we understand the world. The title of your book is Demon Fish Travels Through the Hidden World of Sharks. Demon Fish is uh, to me that's just an obvious reference to a lot of people's perception about sharks. Is that, in fact, what the reference That is. It came up. It actually was a phrase that people uttered in New England when I was doing research there, and they talked about fishermen who saw sharks as the demon fish that, you know, were eating the catch that they wanted to, to take mm. in terms of fish. And I also thought being in New England with the Salem witch trials in my head, <laughs> I thought that, you know, it's amazing that that was what they were using as a description, so it seemed particularly apt. So do you have a website that people could go to to learn more about this or get your book? I do. It's www.demonfishbook.com. Well, thank you very much, Juliet, for spending the time to talk with us about your book. Thank you, Joel. It's been a pleasure. That was Juliet Eilprin talking about her book, Demon Fish Travels Through the Hidden World of Sharks. You can subscribe to the How on Earth podcast through iTunes or visit our website at howonearthradio.org. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.